0: Well, Mr. Joe Biden has more tax plans to try to avoid a debt ceiling, along with updates on housing, Apple, we've got COVID and research labs, yield curves to talk about, Federal Reserve updates, and much more. Joe Biden is apparently now proposing a 25% minimum tax on a billionaire's income. He's also proposing doubling the capital gains tax rate to 39.6% from 20%, uh, basically to raise incomes on those who only receive income through capital gains. Remember, if you're Paying somewhere, Let's say you make uh, at your job somewhere around $200,000, which is fantastic. You might be paying somewhere around 37% in taxes on sort of the last dollars that you're earning. Uh, and that is quite different from somebody potentially receiving a million dollars in long-term capital gains from a stock they held and only paying 20% in federal taxes. So Biden is doubling down on this idea, which was a campaign promise of his as well, part of his uh, Build Back Better economic package. Uh, And uh, personally, I hate to say it, but I think a lot of Joe Biden's plans right now are really just clickbait for debt ceiling negotiations. That is how ludicrous of ideas can the Democratic Party throw out in front of the mainstream media to pick up so that Republicans can have a heart attack. And shout back at those. And potentially the idea is, hey, 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 well, you know, we'll negotiate with you on the debt ceiling. Just pull back on a lot of these things. I don't think Republicans will end up being fooled, though. They know they have control over the House. So a lot of these proposals from Joe Biden, I think, are really just uh, nothing burgers. But obviously, this is all just prepping for uh, what's expected to be a somewhat intense debt ceiling raising debate, probably somewhere close to our X date, since Congress always does everything last minute, somewhere around June. Regarding housing, a lot of talk about the next wave of uh, housing pain coming. Now, it's probably slightly too early to tell right now, but we do know that when we look at the 10-year treasury yield and it's hovering around 4% again today, we expect that that brief fall to about 3.37% on 10-year treasury yields will end up proving to be a slight anomaly right around the beginning of the year when inventory is usually at its lowest. That could potentially lead to a short term bump in real estate prices, but I expect we're just setting up for the next like down. A lot of talk as well about people being in uh, quote unquote stuck. Uh, and, and no, not in the sort of step bro, step sis manner, but instead parents and children stuck in either homes that they own right now or children not able to move out and form their own households because interest rates are so expensive and people feel handcuffed to the lower interest rates that they have. Uh, after all, interest rates more than doubled from a low of around 2.5% for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. Pay court, uh, or, or I should rephrase this, a subscriber loss for people cutting the cord, the cable cord, uh, apparently is expected to hit 6 million this year. That is 6 million people are expecting to cut the cord with their cable providers or potentially satellite providers as well versus 2022 where we had about 5.2 million cut the cord, so to speak. Uh, That uh, sets up for about another 7 to 8% erosion versus 6% in 22, 4 to 5% in 2021. Remember, Invest has a thesis that a lot of this cutting will actually be a big boon to companies like Trade Desk, which personally I have an exposure to and I agree with. Now, it is making a lot of companies, especially companies like even. Dish TV look like potential value opportunities. However, you have to be very careful when we are in innovative times it is very common to look at value companies and end up with a value trap. That is very dangerous, where something looks like it's trading for a very low multiple compared to its cash flow, but it's actually trending on the way to bankruptcy. Now, what's remarkable is if you go back to the days of Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham in the 1950s, in my opinion, because innovation took longer, you had more time to sort of milk the cigar butt of uh, value stocks and trade in and out of them, right? I think there is more risk doing that today given how quickly the innovation cycle moves. Some are now arguing that artificial intelligence could could essentially be Moore's lawing, uh, or or doubling in its capacity. Every six weeks, now it's possibly true because uh, we're so early in the artificial intelligence cycle, and it's almost easy to double the capabilities of artificial intelligence right now, but uh, these are just also potentially extreme estimates, but they're really just to make the point that be careful if you're looking at uh, companies that look like value plays. I think there are a lot of value traps uh, out there. Uh, right now. Uh, And there are a lot of companies that look phenomenal with with leftover cash flow and potentially high dividends, but do consider their uh, staying power. So uh, Bloomberg actually went as far as calling TV a melting ice cube and that uh, TV defections may slow, but now with YouTube offering NFL Sunday tickets, losses could actually intensify. So slight uh, talking out of both sides of their mouth there. Now, another thing that I thought was very interesting is yesterday somebody railed on me for having uh, Apple AirPods. Uh, usually I just have sort of a little one in, but I'm traveling right now, and, and this is what I have. Uh, and uh, I, I was wondering, why why do people hate on, on the Apple audio devices? These are actually pretty remarkable. I used to wear headphones all the time, and uh, generally after wearing headphones for a long period of time, like if you watch my January 6th coverage where I wore a broken sort of beat set of headphones for, for 10 hours, and then there were uh, a bunch of uh, bunch of you subscribers who were actually so nice, you ended up sending me replacement headphones. That that was really cool. I think there were like four of you who did it at the same time. Some really awesome bows, some other beats. I mean, f- phenomenal. Y'all are so wonderful and nice. Uh, and uh, what I found, though, with my original beats is they would hurt my head after a while uh, because the, the band is a hard plastic. Here you have this, this mesh fiber, and, and I could... Almost wear these all day long without even feeling them, uh, or go on a run or whatever. If you go running with them, obviously this this stuff gets a little schwitzig, so you might want to replace that over time. But anyway, so I was wondering why why is there hate for these? And then I also, at the same time, picked up on this Bloomberg, another Bloomberg piece. Actually, this was a uh, Bloomberg uh, Intelligence piece, and they were talking about how Apple AirPods could actually become Apple's third most important product. Uh, There is now analysis that the audio accessory department at Apple could end up hitting $22 billion by 2023, 14% above consensus, with 62% of Gen Z owning AirPods. Now, there are multiple different kinds of AirPods. You know, the little things that are in your ears that always fall out. I can never keep the little white things in. They always fall out. Uh, So I, I prefer the larger ones. But then again, these are a little harder to travel with. But anyway... Uh, AirPod average selling prices right now in 2022 sit at about $181. Those are, uh, that's $24 actually less than what we saw in 2021. However, we expect to get those ASPs back to around $200, especially with the Maxes. And sales for, for AirPods could eventually end up surpassing iPad sales. I personally thought that projection was insane uh, because, I mean, after all, I mean these are like 500 bucks. The other ones are like, what, 250 bucks. But iPads, I mean, the cheapest iPad's, what, 349 bucks right now for a, a sort of the old school iPad? Uh, I mean, maybe, I suppose. Actually, now that I think about it, if the cheapest iPad's are around 349 bucks, that makes this more expensive than the cheapest iPad. That's insane. The iPad mini sits, what, 500, 600 bucks? If you get the iPad Pro, maybe that's where my head is. The iPad Pro, which I generally prefer, uh, which is what I'm using right now, it, it, this thing's like fifteen hundred bucks. Once you're looking at, you know, uh, LTE and and uh, the a little bit of a storage upgrade. Uh, but then again, not everybody's going to be getting the iPad Pro, so maybe it's actually a very interesting idea. And personally, I love Apple. Uh, it's it's one of a, a company that I have large exposure to. But one of the fascinating things to me about Apple as well is their ability to consistently come up with a new product vertical uh, that, uh, that, that uh, like, for example, the audio department, that ends up becoming some remarkably incredible uh, revenue driver, uh, like Bloomberg is arguing here. So phenomenal, and Apple's got insane margins. So personally, when it comes to, let's say, VR headsets, I know there are a lot of people who are very excited about Meta, you know, Facebook. Uh, however, they just dropped their prices because their, their products are uh, not selling. Uh, So there are, uh, you know, Mark Zucks having to drop prices for his his 3D headset, and I wouldn't actually be surprised if Apple ends up coming out with a substantially better product. It is expected to come out later this year, more expensive, somewhere around $3,000 per headset. I think that's a little extreme. Uh, I think it's going to be a little bit more of a sort of, uh, dare I say, luxury item, but maybe one of those things where it's like cool to buy, but then you don't really use it that much. If Apple can figure out how to get people to actually use virtual reality more often, that could actually end up being a huge other vertical for Apple. I personally wouldn't price it into my fundamental analysis, but I I would consider it icing on the cake. Uh, I consider that sort of a margin of safety for some of these phenomenal companies. It's kind of like how I try not to price in things like, you know, an Optimus robot or, or whatever other crazy revenues that could potentially come to Tesla. Those are more just icing on the cake. Uh, and, and another topic that was somewhat interesting here is that uh, on uh, biosafety labs, there are 69 biosafety level four labs in the world. Uh, level four lab is very similar. Well, it's basically the level of laboratory that the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, is and was. Uh, the There are 69 of these facilities in the world. And there's a lot of talk right now about how these uh, level 4 labs actually cost somewhere around $1.25 billion to build. But there are 15 different organizations that advise on biosafety, but none of them actually have the authority to set standards, safety standards for any of these biosafety labs. And so there's a lot of talk now about how lab leaks are potentially totally possible for COVID because there's no one regulatory body saying, hey, here's how to regulate safety for biosafety labs. They're basically self-policing. Kind of crazy. Regarding the yield curve, there's obviously a significant yield curve inversion right now. Uh, some say that's because of the Federal Reserve's dot plot. Others say it's a, just a straight-up harbinger of a recession coming. 10-year Treasury yield now at 4%, and the two-year sitting over 5%. That is a spread of over 100 basis points, which is very similar to the Volcker era, Volker era I should say which is where we last had an inversion, the depth exceeding 100 basis points. That's one full percent policy rates of course right now haven't even hit 5% yet so uh maybe some more work to be done. Uh, Jerome Powell also testified in the Fed yesterday touching on a uh 2% uh target talking about again no reason to change it how it's the global standard inflation is everywhere. Swaps now pricing in a 5.65% terminal rate. Uh however Jerome Powell yesterday did sort of walk back some of the ideas that 50 basis points was already decided he said We have not decided yet what to do regarding 25 or 50 basis points at the next meeting on the 22nd. That's probably because we're waiting for the jobs data to come out tomorrow. Jobs data obviously comes out tomorrow, so stay tuned for that. Uh, That jobs data tomorrow uh, will be one of two of the big uh, catalysts that we're waiting for leading up to the FOMC meeting on the 26th. So uh, pretty excited about that jobs data coming out tomorrow. Uh, there's a little bit of talk uh, as well about uh, racial gaps on unemployment, Jerome Powell talking about how that's somewhat structural, and and, and he's not exactly sure why, he talks a little bit about making progress on CBDCs, and how housing is really constrained by zoning in many areas, and there's little the Fed can do about zoning. Yeah, no kidding. Tell me about California. Zoning in California is just, uh, honestly, I think quite mentally like stupid. You, on one hand, for I'll just give you a quick example because it's always fun to rant on California. And I'm allowed to do that because, well, I, I, I ran for governor in California and I tried to bring logic and plans. Uh, I don't know, I came in second in, out of recall candidates. I guess logic doesn't work too well in politics. But anyway, let me give you an example of not logic. State of California says, hey, we want everybody to be able to convert their garage into an ADU. Well, guess what? Which is an accessory dwelling unit, like a little apartment. Well, guess what? Most cities are now saying, "Uh, well, we'll let you do ADUs as long as they're not in a high fire area." Oh, okay. Where are the high fire areas? Oh, here's the map. Oh, that's the entire city. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's so stupid. It's 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 like, oh, I I politics just drives me nuts. But uh, I've just uh, I've just resigned to. To, to laugh about it. I love covering politics because it's so ridiculous, but I also try to find sort of the truth as much as possible, and uh, that that's challenging in politics. But anyway, that gives you a little bit of a of, of a rundown, sort of i I'll call it a roundup of some of the the wilderness stuff happening in the last few days here. Now we got to touch on crypto and some of the insanity regarding crypto. We got to now hit Silvergate's bankruptcy, or should I say their liquidation, the Bitcoin ETF and updates regarding that. I'm going to talk a little bit about Peter Schiff's son. Yeah. And we're going to talk about Coinbase. What just happened with someone over at Coinbase and what did it have to do with uh, some potential theft going on at Coinbase. A little bit of a warning sign for those of you if you use Coinbase. So first things first, a few days ago, we actually covered Silvergate Capital. We pulled up the balance sheet for Silvergate. And one of the things we complained about with Silvergate was the massive pain on their balance sheet. I mean, we showed that their total assets fell from about 15.4 billion dollars to 11.3. Not only that, but they totally removed any valuation of their intangibles, which was basically a sign that they were writing their brand down to nothing. Their total liabilities dropped as well, but then again, the spread between their total liabilities and assets fell to less than $600 million, whereas previously it sat at around double that. Uh, And a lot of this was due to the write-down of really bad investments. In fact, a lot of people are saying, hey, this is, see here, the losses, for example, this is what happens when you end up borrowing short but lending long. You end up taking the L when interest rates change and you end up going bankrupt. Loss on securities, loss on derivatives, impairment of intangibles. I mean, massive write-downs here at Silvergate. Well, Silvergate has now announced that they plan to wind down operations and liquidate the entire bank. Remember, Silvergate was a community bank in California that was uh, uh, that basically hopped on the crypto bandwagon. And the idea was that, hey, this was going to be a bank that would create on and off ramps 24-7 for individuals. Drum Powell somewhat kind of responded to this uh, disaster slightly by talking about how the Fed's FedNow system expected to be released later this year, which is sort of a replacement for ACH and Zelle, uh, basically more instantaneous uh, transacting. There is still an intermediary, the Fed, but more instantaneous payment between two different banks. Uh, this was really what, what Silvergate was trying to do for crypto by being an on and off ramp In an intermediary for crypto to get from dollars to crypto. Unfortunately, because of the lending they exposed themselves down to, they're now liquidating their bank. Uh, Their shares fell another 50%. They do say they're going to be able to repay all of their deposits. And this was a stock that was actually trading for up to $220 in November of 2021. It's now trading for somewhere around $2, which, uh, quick math, is down over 99%. Uh, This also does put more pressure on regulation for crypto, and it's not the good kind of regulation. I mean, I suppose regulation in general was always deemed to be something that was a hard pill to swallow, but something eventually crypto would have to go through. Uh, But uh, this does put more scrutiny from uh, the SEC and certainly companies like FDIC on anybody who touches crypto, because ultimately, who ends up having to bail? Uh, out banks who uh can't fulfill their deposit requirements, well the FDIC and, and potentially the government so silvergate's uh, demise here is uh, I think a little bit of an L for the crypto industry following of course the disaster that we've been uh, uh, seeing over the last year uh, I still have I still have nervousness regarding binance. Uh, I am very hopeful though that once we get through this sort of flushing out of the excess. Uh, there's a high likelihood that uh, we end up getting to cleaner regulation and uh, and, and less of this uh, this nonsense uh, and that's exactly where I am actually paying attention to what's going on with the gr- uh, grayscale Bitcoin trust. The grayscale Bitcoin trust is basically kind of, it, it's, it's a fund. You have to be an accredited investor and you suffer dare I say suffer it's not that long. You have to sign up for at least a six month lockup if you want to invest in the grayscale Bitcoin trust. And the goal is that the assets under management in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust will eventually be turned into an ETF, which is an exchange-traded fund. Now, the difference between that is uh, ETFs uh, generally, don't trade for a discount or premium. It's possible that they they slightly do, but that's more of a rounding error, in my opinion, than it is an actual discount or premium. ETFs generally trade at what's known as net asset value. So let me give you an a- example. I'm an active ETF manager, which is true. I'm a licensed financial advisor, but let's say that uh, my ETF, I'll just say has, uh, I don't know, let's make it up. Okay, let's say it has exactly twenty million dollars in assets under management. Well, then we had, and, and and then let's say it has has, I don't know, uh, shares worth $1 million a share. Well, if we have $20 million in assets under management, then there are 20 shares. ETFs work very differently from the way stocks work because the number of shares that exist just aligns with how many people put money in. So if, if somebody comes along and says, here's $20 million, well, then we just create 20 more shares. There's no like dilution. The shares just represent how much money is in it. That's very different from a mutual fund uh, or something like the grayscale bitcoin trust and very different from sh- from actually stocks etfs uh, are, are are much uh dare i say uh i i would I would call them preferred this I'm gonna, i 'm going to I want to be very clear this is my opinion. I think ETFs are much more preferred because there there is none of this sort of dilution or discount or premium or all of the ridiculousness, dilution of course affecting stocks, uh, specifically uh, companies, uh, and then of course these massive discounts or premiums affecting mutual funds uh, or things like the grayscale Bitcoin trust grayscale Bitcoin trust. Right now, it trades at about a 50% discount to the assets it actually has under management. So what that means is if you have $100 of Bitcoin in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, the the fund is actually trading for $50. And the reason it's trading for that sort of discount is one, regulatory risk, and number two, illiquidity. And and it's basically the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust trying to price in the market. The free market is trying to price in. Well, what if Bitcoin falls more, right? Uh, And so uh, Grayscale is actually suing the SEC uh, over the rejection of the opportunity to turn the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust into an exchange-traded fund. I actually think a Bitcoin ETF, which companies like ARK Invest have also filed for, would be very brilliant. I think it would be a smart way and a safer, much, much safer way for people to be exposed to crypto. Uh, the regulation over the uh, storage of, uh, of uh, crypto assets would be uh, a substantially uh, more scrutiny based, or in my opinion, safer for individual investors than individual investors having to worry about, you know, cold storage versus uh, exchanges. Then you have exchange risk, then you have uh, cold storage risk, like losing your, your, your coins. You know, there's actually a joke on Reddit that the guy who lost like $400 million of uh, crypto on a hard wallet uh, because he threw away his laptop. Uh, there was a joke. It's a joke, but it was, it's funny. Well, maybe not, but anyway, it was circulating that he spent $2 million to basically dig up the dump where he threw away his laptop or where he thinks he threw away his laptop. And he finally found his hard wallet, was able to recover his coins, only to realize that what he thought was $400 million of Bitcoin was actually just Bitcoin cash. And uh, he only had $400,000 of value after having gone into debt by $2 million to actually recover this hard drive. And now he's upside down $1.6 million dollars. Anyway, the the point of that is that's a sad story. There's some humor in it, but it's to argue that it's not easy. If you have your money on exchange, it's convenient. But uh, you know now you have exchange risk. If you have your money on cold storage, what if you lose it? You know, and I know a lot of people are like, well, that's your problem. You should put it next to your gold bars and your guns. But again, you know, it's it's there's risk. Whereas if you have an ETF, I personally think it's the easiest way to have exposure to crypto. But, but you can't have that right now because the SEC doesn't want it. Anyway, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is suing. Uh, there's the potential that uh, the court right now is leaning towards actually vacating the rejection, which would be fantastic for the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust because then it would go back to the SEC. And the SEC would either have to approve the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust to turn into an ETF or uh, reject them again with, with uh, potentially a different reason that they pull out of their butt. But personally, for crypto investors, I think one of the best things that could happen would be us ending up getting a crypto-based ETF. I think it would be phenomenal for crypto. It would be a very, very bullish moment. I did uh, end up having dinner with Peter Schiff and his family yesterday. I'll say uh, Peter Schiff's son is uh, super into Bitcoin, brilliant guy. Realized, obviously, I mean, anybody could have known this, but both of them were very libertarian. Big government is nearly always bad. A smaller government is much better, or potentially no government. I mean, our our conversation ended up turning into the potential for the privatization of fire departments and blockchain-based arbitration of disputes, which is something that's been theorized for a very long time, the the blockchain arbitration of disputes. Uh, One of the issues we ended up running into was, what if somebody loses a dispute and doesn't pay? Uh, and uh, what if the assets that are now arbitrated through blockchain are actually real assets and 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 can't be traded, uh, like for example a house or a car, uh, even though the title can be traded through blockchain, you 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 the physical possession of it can't. Uh, and so then then we kind of the conversation briefly devolved into the idea of well then who has the militia? And they were joking like oh is is the militia going to going to start a department? Are they going to start wearing uniforms? Should we call it a police department? (laughs) So uh, anyway, really, really fascinating discussions. So uh, anyway, it's very interesting to see Peter Schiff, who's obviously very uh, anti-Bitcoin, and then his son sort of take the opposite position of being very pro-Bitcoin, but both of them being (laughs) anti-government. Anywho, so, uh, you know, another thing that I thought was fascinating was that Apparently, a man uh, was hacked. Uh, A person named Jared Ferguson was hacked uh, on uh, having his money on exchange with Coinbase. Allegedly, the individual uh, was uh, uh, a victim of being sim-swapped. Sim-swapped, let me say that correctly. Apparently, Jared Ferguson is now suing Coinbase for over $96,000 in losses because his phone was hacked. Uh, Sim-swapping is basically where somebody calls in your cell phone provider and ends up uh, requesting a new SIM because they allege that they lost their phone. They impersonate you, and uh, then they uh, can use that phone to uh, basically. They would need then your username uh, uh, for let's say your Coinbase account. They reset the password for your Coinbase account, getting a confirmation text. Uh, I would imagine they'd have to have some kind of uh, access as well then maybe to your email, but maybe not. I mean, in theory, if if you have somebody's login email and you sim swap to get a code, you could just reset your password on the page, uh, log in, and then transfer your crypto out. Uh, Jared is now suing Coinbase, alleging that Coinbase is violating the uh, the Electronic Funds Transfer Act, protecting uh, customer funds from electronic fund transfer fraud. And uh, violating Article 4A of the California Uniform Commercial Code stating that if a bank authorizes an unauthorized order, it will get refunded or the individual will be refunded. However, Coinbase is not a bank and uh, doesn't uh, fall under the same sort of regulation as banks do. Therefore, it's likely that unfortunately Jared may actually lose Uh, that case so uh, this is leading of course to a lot of debate about uh, crypto security and of course a lot of people make the argument again in the crypto space hey not your keys not your crypto Uh, of course that's easy to say but it it is it is not the most convenient thing to have uh, uh, your your coins off exchange if you're trading them right so uh, i do i do empathize i I can't empathize i haven't lost money to to one of these i i sympathize with uh, with people who end up losing uh, money on on exchanges, especially uh, if there's there's hacking involved, because you know you you might want to be trading from uh, either uh, stable coins to actual crypto assets uh, like Bitcoin or Ethereum or otherwise. Uh, so uh, anyway, long and short of that is if you can avoid. Uh, exposure to sim swapping via you know putting putting additional security measures into your your phone account by maybe calling and uh, ask your ask your phone provider to to uh, set a code word onto your account so if anybody ever calls in they have to give a code word or you know set up more security whether that's uh, don't use sim authentication use, uh, use uh, authenticator apps. You know, and then back up your authenticator apps onto a different device in the event you do lose your your phone. Uh, but anyway, uh, a two-factor identification, big deal here. Uh, I would uh, I would highly encourage uh, looking at that. A lot of people in the crypto community obviously say, hey, you should just never use two-factor identification on your phone. A lot of people actually calling for just straight up banning two-factor identification uh, through cell phones. Uh, I I, I kind of completely agree with that uh anyway overall uh, it's it's worth taking also a look at just sort of what's going on now uh SimSwap is a tool that makes a copy of your phone remotely yeah i mean that's that's a i guess another way to put it i mean it's it's really what it's doing is it's allowing text messages to go to somebody else's device right uh so i, th- I think that's uh that's obviously a a problem. Anyway, Bitcoin right now sitting at about $21,625 at the time of this recording. Uh, we have been trending down going into these catalyst meetings here, not only the jobs report, but also the CPI report. So, uh, uh, you know, big, big problems. All new phones are now eSIM, thankfully. I don't know that eSIM actually makes a difference because somebody can activate an eSIM by calling in somewhere else. You don't actually need a physical uh, SIM card anymore. You could get eSIM. So eSIM actually hurts, Uh, in my opinion, more so than, uh, than physical. Uh, but anyway, someone here writes cold storage can have multiple backups of the same one. You can get multiple, uh, wallets, but yes, I'd rather hold half in a trust. You're right. I mean, that's a very good point. It's like, you could, you could, it's kind of like guns. Okay. Let's say you have 20 guns in your house. It's like you can find 20 different places to hide it, but it's still a pain in the ass, right? I mean, you could put guns in, in multiple different properties in case one of them burns down or whatever. Uh, but, but you have to keep track of all of them. You have to make sure they're safe and somebody else doesn't have access to them who's unauthorized. Who then has access to the combinations where you're hiding them all? It's, you know, how do you track it? It's, it's a pain in the butt. There's just things to, to uh, think about. Uh, anyway, uh, that's sort of a little bit of a crypto discussion uh, for all of us okay okay let's see here turn turn on so uh it looks like unemployment claims came in let's go ahead and look at that unemployment claims unemployment claims and uh, uh-huh. trying by one sec I'm trying to get this crap to load <laughs> um okay okay. Okay, more more claims than expected. That's actually good news. I know that's terrible from like a human point of view, but I'm also going to give us the preview for tomorrow. So uh, let's let's do that. All right. Well, we just got unemployment claims, but in addition to that, we need to talk about what you need to know going into Friday, March 10th, because the actual BLS, which should just be shortened to BS, you know, Bureau of Statistics, BS, anyway, Bureau of Labor Statistics releases their jobs report tomorrow at 5.30 a.m. Pacific time, 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. I will be covering it live, so make sure you tune into the Meet Kevin channel. But I'm going to give you the Bloomberg estimates right now, and I'll also give you some wall Street estimates for what to expect going into the labor report tomorrow. This is a big deal. I want to prep you for it. Uh, But first, let me just cover that yes, we did end up getting uh, initial claims today that were actually, dare I say, bullish for the market. Uh, This is not a good thing for individuals. I want to be very clear. I sympathize with anybody losing their job. I don't think it's fantastic for people to lose their jobs. It is unfortunate that going into recessionary environments, unfortunately, the likelihood of people losing their jobs increases, right? That's sad. Uh, But anyway, so what happened today? Well, today we got initial jobless claims that came in. Uh, the expectation was one hundred and ninety-five thousand. Uh, the prior read was one hundred ninety thousand in claims. Sitting below two thousand is uh, is er, sorry, two hundred thousand is still showing a pretty strong labor market. We did just finally come in with claims of two hundred and eleven thousand. Two hundred eleven thousand. That is uh, more jobless claims than expected by uh, about 6-ish percent. That's actually good news for markets. Uh, You do have continuing claims that came in higher than expected as well. Continuing claims coming in over uh, 1.7 million continuing claims. We're sitting at uh, the actual number here, 1.718. The expectation was 1.660. Now, what I'd also like to tell you is the revision. Uh, the prior read was 1655. That was actually slightly revised down to 1649. Barely a revision. Barely a revision. Probably not worth talking about uh, because it's so nominal. What's more important is that we actually beat the survey today with higher continuing claims. Uh, it, and again, this is what the Federal Reserve is trying to engineer, right? So the sooner we get job loss, the sooner we could say, okay, we're in a recession, and the sooner we could get over this. Now, I hate to say it, but it's kind of like ripping off a bandage. Right now, it just feels like we're kind of like peeling up the edge of the bandage, and we're just like a child. We're like, man, it's like I don't know why mommy put a bandage on, like, the hairy part of my arm. <laughs> you know, it's like you're kind of feeling it off. It's like it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. It's like somebody just needs to come along and go, and it's like, ah. Uh, but, but nobody nobody wants to because it 's just it's painful right, so we 're just kind of sitting here going uh, well, maybe if we just keep healing it eventually it'll go away and and maybe it'll hurt less in, in aggregate, but it'll be it'll be more annoying for the longer period of time. I somewhat feel like that 's what 's going on with the economy if we had to compare it to a crusty bandage, uh maybe just take a few showers and it'll just just wash off but anyway tomorrow 's numbers very important, so last month. In January, we had an absolutely insane read from uh, the labor report. We had five hundred seventeen thousand jobs. Now, that five hundred seventeen thousand jobs was expected to be mostly a joke. Uh, dare I say a joke? But it was it was terrible. Uh, we had uh, Barrons basically tell us the uh, seasonal adjustments for January were so ridiculous that uh, really you, you can't put any weight on the January data that we ended up getting because of how different the environment is this January compared to really any of the Januaries we've had in the past. Now, I don't want to come across as suggesting that this time is different. I mean, every single year, January is considered seasonal adjustment month. But bottom line, Barron's is basically saying the Bureau of Labor Statistics was expecting us to lose somewhere around 2.8 million jobs in uh, January compared to December, whereas usually we lose somewhere around 2.3 million jobs so that the bar... for for job loss was was actually set so much higher that uh, when we got the actual uh, jobless report, the unemployment report, the numbers came in so much stronger uh, thanks to this insane seasonal adjustment. And the potential excuses for that are, one, labor hoarding. That is more companies saying, look, I still have enough money to where maybe I can sustain through the recession. It's been so hard for me to hire people. I'm going to keep people rather than being super reflective or responsive to the market where as soon as things slow down, I start firing because people are somewhat shell-shocked and they don't necessarily want to start firing people because it's been so painful to hire them in the first place and in some cases so expensive to hire people in the first place so they don't want to go through that kind of garbage again. Anyway, the seasonal adjustments for January are expected to suffer from big revisions as well. So what I, one of the big things I'm looking forward to tomorrow is not only am I going to look at what happened with the actual numbers tomorrow, which I'll give you the survey for in just a moment, but I'm actually going to look at the revision. So the survey for tomorrow and change in non-farm payroll is 225000 That's a uh, That's basically half of what we had before at 517000 But I really want to pay attention to Obviously, best case for the market that comes in soft, right? Change in non farm payrolls if it comes in lower, that is, less people got new jobs from 225. If we get something like what Wall Street is more expecting, like uh, Barclays, JP Morgan, most Wall Street firms are expecting somewhere between 190 to 200. Although the firms surveyed by Bloomberg have an aggregate estimate of around 225,000. So, let me say. The firms that I'm reading reports from on Wall Street, let me clarify that, are suggesting 190 to 200. The Bloomberg Consensus, which is many more different firms, they're sitting at 225. Obviously, if that comes in lower, it'll be bullish because it'll it'll show, okay, all right, finally, the Fed's work is starting to have an effect. Maybe that means if the Fed's work is starting to have an effect, January was just an anomaly, and maybe, just maybe, the Fed can slow down their rate increases because... Finally, their rate hikes are starting to impact the market. That's a big deal. Markets are waiting desperately for evidence that the Federal Reserve's uh, rate hikes are actually affecting the market. Worst-case scenario, you end up getting a Kenny G response, where basically the Federal Reserve is hiking, but the market keeps growing. That is, the economy keeps growing. People keep adding jobs, and we actually get a strong jobs report. Like if tomorrow we got something like a 250 or 300 thousand jobs report. People are going to freak. I think you're just going to get a straight down in the stock market because what's going to happen is you're going to build up so much fear that, oh my gosh, January is a reanimation of the economy. It's like a zombie that's getting up again. And, and the Fed's been trying to shoot it with a shotgun over and over again. It's been trying to double tap. But the damn zombie keeps getting up and they're like, fine, I guess we have to put in maybe some incendiary rounds. In other words, we got we to gotta raise the rate. Uh, the, you know, the, the Federal Reserve discount rate even more, Fed funds rate. Uh, and and that would then reflect in lower stock and asset prices because that's what we do as our expectations for the Fed funds rate go up, stock market goes down. Now, it's been relatively resilient. The fact that we've gone from 4.9% on a terminal rate to 56 and have, you know, only slightly traded down on markets is phenomenal. It really suggests that, Markets are more fearful of a Paul Volcker than they are of a slightly increasing Fed funds rate that's higher for longer. That's really what the market is telling you right now. But boy, if we get a bad jobs report tomorrow, we're going straight down. We're going straight down because it's suggesting that January was not a seasonal adjustment anomaly. It suggests that, oh, good Lord, the zombie is back up. The Fed's going to have to get a lot more aggressive than anybody is expecting. We can't give February that same seasonal adjustment excuse. So if February's hot. It's bad news. Depending on how hot it is, is is going to be really interesting. Now, keep in mind, the the only leftover excuse if we get a bad report tomorrow for for the jobs report would be that, well, I mean, unemployment is lagging. Okay, yeah, everybody knows that unemployment is lag. Well, not everybody. Some people still think uh, unemployment is a leading indicator, which is insane. Unemployment is is a substantially lagging indicator, and and so the only leftover excuse if we get a hot jobs report tomorrow is that, well. You know, it's a lagging indicator. That'd be the only leftover excuse. But, but really, the bull argument would start looking very, very weak if, if that were the case, right? Uh, <laughs> loading up the incendiary rounds to the door on an online raid. <laughs> Rust references. Anyway, uh, so uh, the surveys 225 for non-farm payrolls. Uh, the unemployment rate is expected to hold stable at 3.4%. Here's another very important statistic. The change in average hourly earnings. This is going to be a very big deal. Uh, It's going to be one of the first things I look for at that unemployment report tomorrow is that change in average hourly earnings, because this is where we look at what's known as an average hourly earnings wage price spiral induction in English. If people keep getting paid more money month over month, in other words, people got paid more money in February than they were making in January, well, hot damn... It clearly means people were giving the Jerome Powell a big middle finger, and he going to have to do a whole lot more to hurt us. That's just in like simple plain English here. Uh 0.3% is the expectation. That annualizes and please remember it's not an exponential function, it is just multiplied by 12. Point it's just not like genius math, okay, this is very simple. If the expectation is 0. 0.3, it means the annualized annualized rate of inflation, the speed we are traveling at not compounded, just the speed we're traveling at is 3.6% for wage increases. That is obviously still higher than expected. Uh, So like best case scenario tomorrow, we get some kind of unemployment report that says, uh, you know, we get 200,000 new jobs or less. A One handle would be like sexy and beautiful and a turn on. Uh, This is what happens when you're in finance all day long. Those are the references you make. But anyway, uh, average hourly earnings, uh, move from, uh, if, if we can get instead of a 0.3, anything below that, like I'll take a point two all day long. I'm not even going to ask for anything lower than that. I'll gladly take a point two That would be very, very delicious. Now do note that the average hourly earnings year over year are expected to step up from 4.4 to 4.7%, but that does not matter so terribly much as uh, the actual average hourly earnings coming uh, down on a month over month basis. That is going to matter more again, survey point three. Now, uh, average weekly hours worked is expected to slightly tick down again to 34.6. The lower average hourly uh, average hours worked per week comes in, the better for the markets because the lower that number is. Again, the the survey is 34.6 down from 34.7 last. The lower that is, the, the indication is the softer the economy is, and the less demands there are on workers to work harder longer. Longer is actually the the precise way to put that. Uh, now uh, that's an indication, you know, if, if it comes in too low, then it's a sign that oh no, the recession could be worse, right? But really, we, we so so we we have to have a very balanced report where it comes in soft, but not not so soft on average hourly works that uh, hours worked, average weekly hours worked, uh, because that signals recessionary fears, right? So like it could come in too low, where it's like oh my god, recession. Labor force participation rate is expected to be stable at 62.4%. I still think it's remarkable that the average hours worked is only like 32%. I I, I don't I have no idea who only works 32 hours uh, or 34 hours, whatever. Who, it's like no difference at that point. Whoever that is, I'm, I'm very jealous. Uh, yeah, anyway. But uh, one of the things that I do think is very interesting as a potential impetus for uh, actually potentially higher labor reports, that is more jobs being created, and potentially less inflation for wages. Now, this is, this is crazy. Think about what I just said. More jobs created, but less inflation. Okay, well, how does that work? Well, what it means is, if we continue to get more leisure and hospitality and airline hiring, air travel services, hotel, whatever, if we continue to get more hiring in that sector, we're going to see a higher jobs report. But if more people are available, Best case scenario. Here's like your your ultimate best case scenario, right? You get a, a consistent with survey jobs report. A lot of those jobs are in retail and hospitality and travel, but the average pay is going down, uh, or or like the increase, the rate of increase is going down, right? People aren't making less money; they're just making more money at a slower growth rate, right? But here's something very interesting. Take a look at this. This right here is uh, an article on more women rejoin the workforce, lifting the economy. Now, I think this is really interesting because the article goes through and talks about how American women are staging a return to the workforce, and this is actually helping propel the economy. Now, this is actually really good because if uh, households—look, let's just be clear here. A lot of women—and this is not—I'm not—nowhere and in this video do I want to be considered sexist, uh, or, or, or somehow, like uh, trying to make an argument about men versus women. This is not a political video. This is just financial fact. Financial fact is that more women stayed home to take care of children during the pandemic because childcare was either deemed unsafe or unavailable. Now, there are a lot of single working households because we are potentially going into a recessionary environment. More women may go back to work. And this is not to say that women don't have hard work when they're at home, okay? I want to be very clear about that. I highly respect people who take care of children all day long because while I could take care of children maybe all day long once a week, I ain't going to do it every single day. It's a very difficult job. Anyway, uh, so what do you have over here? Uh, women have gained more jobs than men for four months straight, including January's hiring surge, pushing them to uh, uh, about 49.8% of all jobs created female workers last edged higher than men on U.S. payrolls in late 2019 before the pandemic sent nearly 12 million women out of work compared to uh, million—sorry, 10 million for men. Even as job opportunities grew a year, a year later, nearly 1.5 fewer, million fewer mothers were actively in the labor force in March of 21 than in February of 2020 amid childcare disruptions and health concerns, virtual schooling, daycare closures, blah, 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 blah. The workforce is powering the economy's underlying source of strength. See, now this is very important. If people are going back to work and they have more household income, then they could actually sustain economic growth, aka positive GDP spend, which means no recession because more women going back to work to supplement men who are losing their job or or making less money or not enough money to sustain because of inflation that we've experienced means maybe we could actually... The more women go back to work, the less likely we end up having a recession. Now, that's actually really an interesting idea. For now, demand remains strong. Women hold 66% of all jobs in leisure and hospitality. That compares to like tech where where it's more men. But anyway, women's employment in these sectors grew by 719,000 in the six months ending January, uh, accounting for 38% of all private sector jobs. Men account for a dominant share of jobs in smaller sectors, such as transportation, warehousing, manufacturing, and construction, and the tech-heavy sector. But what's suffering from layoffs? Well, tech is suffering from layoffs. Men uh, take up roughly 60% of tech jobs. Warehouse, manufacturing, construction, these areas are seeing a slowdown. But where do you see a pickup? Well, leisure, hospitality, educational, uh, education, health, and other services. In other words, the services sector where inflation is still strong is where women are actually picking up more jobs. Now, this is actually very interesting because, again, it means we could actually be seeing a higher jobs report as more women take more jobs. Uh, However, more availability of labor supply also potentially aligns with less uh, inflationary pressures on being forced to pay people more money. Uh, In other words, and this sounds terrible, okay, but it's from a finance point of view, but in other words, more women going back to work means wages are not going up as fast which means uh, more income for people, which sustains us potentially out of a recession or out of a deep recession, which potentially sustains earnings at companies. uh, But it also helps us remove the risk of a wage price spiral. Remember, a lot of these uh, services industries are still behind, well below trend for uh, employment growth because of the pandemic. Healthcare is back to 2019 levels, but we should have another 900,000 jobs in healthcare if it hadn't been for the pandemic because so many people retired or whatever. So uh, here's just sort of an anecdote. If you think there's going to be a recession and realize your husband or partner is in a highly sensitive sector, you might decide, well, I better try to work more and not quit or just get a job in the first place. Nurse saying blah, 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 Uh, article goes on. A job paying $10 an hour might not be attractive for women struggling with school schedules, an economics professor says. But if the same job starts at $15, $16 per hour and offers benefits, she might take it. Uh, Interesting. I found I'm in a much... Okay, here's just sort of an anecdote of a woman who says, you know, I I feel more value in my life when I go in and add value at a job, and then I go home to add uh, value to my family rather than solely... Uh, being with with kids all day long. Uh but but anyway, uh yeah, it's it's very interesting. And again, this this is not this is not an argument about, you know, the the gender pay disparities or whatever. Uh it, you know, again, it's not designed to be a political video here. This this is just fact. But the fact of the matter is this is fantastic news, right? More income for households means a shallower recession. It means less EPS pain for companies. It, which is a big fear of markets right now, and it potentially also means more uh, uh, likelihood that we're able to avoid a Paul Volcker uh, rug pull from the Federal Reserve because uh, of uh, of a lack of a wage-price spiral impetus. So this is actually all fantastic news. Uh, I expect a lot of insight tomorrow from the labor report. Again, that's at 5:30 a.m. Pacific time. 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, I will be live-streaming it uh, live, just like I live-stream every morning. Hopefully, you'll join me for sort of the day's finance news every morning. Okay, next topic. So, we've now talked crypto. we talked uh, jobs. Uh, that was somewhat bullish. Now, we got it. it uh, why don't we talk about something a little bearish? Yeah, let's do that. Sorry, Gary. Give me about... Um, 30 seconds here, so I got to pull up a video as well, da, 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 da. see some what your comments, thoughts on CPI next Tuesday, uh, ask me Monday or Sunday, <laughs> I don't know, uh, you know, I think the, uh, really the BLS jobs report will give us a little bit of guide on how to feel about that inflationary impetus, mm-hmm. that's just my thesis right now, so we'll see. Uh then we've got uh Nikki T tweeted. Okay, let's see. Let's take a quick look and see what Nikki T had to say. We, we love our boy Nikki. What'd you say, Nikki? Mm-hmm. Thank you for pointing this out. Okay, let's see Nick T. Nick, 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 nick. What did he have to say? Uh <laughs> Nick T just tweeted, due to revised seasonal factors, a model of underlying trend inflation produced by the New York Fed multivariate core ticked up to 4.9% in January after initially being reported to have been around 3.7% at the end of 2022. Yeah, I mean, it just, just reiterates the noise of, of these changes in, in seasonal factors. And it just, again, it, it reiterates how annoying these seasonal adjustments are. It's like, it's like the data is already not super believable. But now you change all the the standards with all these adjustments. It's like, good Lord. We'll just have to see. I mean, tomorrow will be a first example. Yeah. So anyway. All right. Here we go. Ready for this. All right. Let's talk about the bears. Mm. I love me talking about some bears. Stand by. Alright, give me like 10 seconds. Well now we got to talk about the bears. What we're going to do in this bearish video is we are going to take my bullish bias and respond to what some of the bears are saying. We're going to talk about BlackRock. We're going to react a video from a chief economist interviewed by CNBC and we're going to see what people think about the terminal Fed funds rate. We are going to look at what the Financial Times thinks about the probability of higher rates and how much higher. And we are going to look at some of the pain presented by T.S. Lombard and their parish opinions. So, if you are a bear, you want to watch. If you are a bull, you want to watch. And if you are a human, you want to take a look at the St. Paddy's Day coupon, dare I say, linked down below for the programs on building your wealth. Lifetime access to the course member live streams, access to all the beautiful content and perspective on building your wealth, whether it's through stocks, real estate, being an entrepreneur, being employed, how to make more money, tax benefits, LLCs, risk liability, everything, and Q&A with me. Take a look at that linked down below. Let's get started. BlackRock. And Mr. Rick Reader thinks it is reasonable that the Federal Reserve will easily get to a 6% terminal rate. Markets are presently at the time of this recording pricing at a 5.65% rate. And now BlackRock believes it is not only reasonable to get to 6%, but also stay there for an extended period of time, potentially as long as a year. The probability of a half-point-high increase from the Federal Reserve is now sitting as high as 73.5%, according to CME FedWatch tools. That is not great for the March 22nd meeting, and it is a big boon to the bears. Unless, of course, we get 25, and if we've been pricing in bearishness, then that means moon. Okay, maybe not quite moon, but it would be positive. Anyway, it does show that the 50 bpi hike is very much on the table. Uh, BlackRock is uh, really comparing the U.S. To, uh, uh, to to a chemical like polyurethane. Now, I, th- I think this is sort of a weird comparison, but but he says markets can be stretched, bent, and stressed and flexed without breaking. Uh, and 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 really, a six percent rate shouldn't break our financial institutions or our financial systems, which are very strong. So while it's bearish to argue for 6%, he's really saying like the odds of us really breaking something by going to 6%, not that high. Now it's also worth taking a listen into uh, what uh, this uh, this particular interview here from CNBC I think is uh, pretty fascinating. So let's let's jump into this here. And we'll listen to this together. Okay, ready for this? Needed. Here we go. Uh, what
1: we're missing right now is some guidance that says how much is going to be enough. Because Powell's clearly said where we are, where we were telling you we're going, is not enough. And I think the one thing that uh, Steve and other uh, people haven't mentioned is the guidance that the Federal Reserve report itself gave us. It said that given the kind of policy rules that people have been using to assess different types of policies, we'd need rates right, somewhere on the order of six and a half, seven percent to get enough of a, of a slowdown in the
0: economy. I, I just like to say what the Fed is talking about is this Taylor rule. The Taylor rule, as you can see on screen here, adjusted for current conditions, suggests a Fed funds rate closer to 7%. This is basically, the, the Federal Reserve has about four or five different versions of the Taylor rule they use. And the Taylor rule really says you could be at a terminal rate of 5%, you could be at a terminal rate of over 7%. And it just depends on which measure of the Taylor rule you're looking at. I don't know how much it really matters. Back in the COVID pandemic, the Taylor rule actually told the Federal Reserve that they should go negative. So when you hear Taylor rule, think about it like a suggestion. But I would pay more. I would give more credence to what the Fed is actually saying, which is, look, hot jobs, hot CPI report, rates go up. Softer expected, 25 and pause sooner. Simple. We'll see. Let's keep going. Get
1: us back to two percent inflation. Those numbers are not even on the table right now, and I think the message is yet to come. And we might actually see if the disinflation story disappears on us, and the economy actually is hotter than we thought. We may be seeing six and seven percent numbers uh, between now and the, the middle of the year.
2: Yeah, we were. I, Steve and I both thought we were just uh, talking to Professor Taylor about this. Not not a couple of days ago. I think he was at six percent, Bill, but. Um, either way, it seems – let's talk about kind of the, the yield curve inversion. The 10-year yield at uh, 4% now – I have to, like, think every time I say these numbers because we've been whipsawing around so much. So you're saying we're going to 6 maybe 7% on the Fed funds rate. The no. 10-year is now at 4% and not going back to the highs we saw in the fall. Have we started the process whereby – the higher the Fed fund's probability goes, the lower the 10-year yield might go because it's so concerned about where that growth trajectory is taking us?
1: One of the things to keep in mind is that the Fed is not focused on the inverted yield curve. They're focused on what it really means for the economy. If we have a slowdown in inflation, people really adapt their expectations, adapt their behavior, and we get the kind of soft landing they're hoping for, we have lower 10-year rates. But if we have a crash and a hard landing, we also get the lower ten-year rates the 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 fed itself of course prefers that soft landing and they're hoping that through this jawboning and early jawboning they're going to be able to get people to change the behavior early enough so that we avoid that hard landing but the 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 inversion of the yield curve gives us two scenarios and and which scenario is going to be depends-
0: let me just pause there before he talks about the two scenarios uh, what what's really important to remember about the ten-year yield curve is the ten-year yield curve crashes housing, right, The, the or, or the 10-year yield, the more it's around 4% or higher, the more pain you have in real estate. Now, the Federal Reserve, to some, extent, w- to some extent, wants real estate to soften because, as Robert Schiller tells us, the wealth effect is most affected by real estate, which means if real estate values come down, people finally stop spending money. What has the Fed always told us? They want to control demand. By reigning in demand, they can reign in inflation. They cannot solve supply chain problems. They can only fight demand. The easiest way to do that is crush housing. So in my opinion, the more the Fed teases the idea that we're going to go higher for longer, the higher the 10-year goes. The higher the 10-year goes, the reason it goes up is because people think, well, if we're going to go higher for longer, then maybe I should wait to buy bonds. Less people buying bonds, higher yields. Higher yields more pain for real estate. It's simple. The only way that 10-year goes down is when, yes, either we are in a recession and the Fed has accomplished getting rid of inflation, or we're going in for that soft landing and inflation is going away without a recession. But until then, the more the Fed says, higher, longer, higher, longer, higher, longer, the more these 10-year treasury yields go up, the more pain you have for housing. In my opinion, it's very simple. It's very clear. Let's keep going.
1: Upon how credible the fed statements are and how much wall street takes it to heart
2: probably one of the worst pieces of news steve this week was the unit labor cost and productivity report or maybe it was last week but when it shows that for the quarter um unit labor costs think we're still six and a half percent productivity is now falling So it's now showing evidence of labor hoarding, you know, that firms are just reluctant to let people go, which means inflation is higher uh, for now than it otherwise would have been. And that we could end up seeing more hikes and then a deeper downturn resulting in the next, I don't know what the time frame is now, 6, 12, 18 months. I mean, this is going to be a long period of waiting, waiting and waiting for uh, these conditions to fully set in. Kelly, I've given up a lot of my optimism here, but but one thing I've not quite given up just yet is my optimism on productivity. Um, and, and I can we can go through that. I think you and I probably should do a segment on this down the road. But right now, there's a lot of volatility in the productivity numbers because we had this surge of productivity at the beginning of the pandemic when some of the lower wage and lower productivity workers uh, were let go. And now they've come back. So I'm not quite ready yet to give up the ghost. I think we've maybe had some improvements in productivity from different business processes that have come out of COVID. So I'm a little bit I remain optimistic on that front. I don't think we're quite giving that up. What does concern me, though, is the issue of whether or
0: not we have enough workers in the workforce. And that was discussed. And and I think that we are still several million short of where we should be relative to having. A- and, and quick note there this is actually where my talk about women coming back to the workforce uh, from that Wall Street Journal article is really important. We talked about this idea that a lot of women are, uh, stopped working during the pandemic because of childcare needs or otherwise, or or fear of, of COVID because uh, women are more represented in leisure and hospitality and travel and healthcare and education. And these really affected by the pandemic. However, those folks now fearful that Uh, You know, their spouse or otherwise could be losing their job in manufacturing, construction, or tech might end up seeing themselves go back to work to help prop up their household's ability to sustain during these expensive times and and, and difficult times, which that would actually put downward pressure on uh, the the sort of labor uh, rate of inflation, uh, downward pressure on a wage price spiral increasing the supply of labor is, is a phenomenal way to ensure that we don't have to get Paul Volcker. But, uh, you know, it, it certainly does indicate, yeah, yeah, going, going through a little bit of a tougher time. But hey, if we could fill those jobs, we can remove that labor tightness. Fantastic. The Federal Reserve's that much closer to a soft landing. Workers to do the job and
2: uh, you know I thought it was interesting, Bill. he is getting asked now more yeah. about pockets of the economy where we have problems. We'll talk about this later, but commercial real estate was one of them um, and just this idea of you know when Warren pressed pressman and he tried to say you know we don't think we have to have a worsening labor market to bring inflation down, yeah. but I'm not sure that's true because it's now unit labor costs that are driving inflation higher. This is not about the supply chain anymore. Um, this is directly see, a, an
0: issue of the type see see what Kelly's saying here, right. The labor cost is the problem. It's labor cost inflation is the problem. How do you solve labor cost inflation? You increase supply. Well, we are seeing a surge of supply. The leading indicators, no matter what that jobs report says tomorrow, the leading indicators are telling us the supply of labor is surging, regardless of whether that's women or men. Look at the earnings calls from companies. Whether it's Lyft, Uber, Chipotle, Starbucks, right? We've gone through this before. don't want to sound redundant. The leading indicators are saying the supply of labor is rapidly expanding. There, it seems unavoidable.
1: Well, Kelly, you have to watch out that the unit labor cost is an aggregate number. There are some companies that are really doing quite well in, keep, in keeping their costs down and changing their, their business models and, and using technology to make workers more productive. Other parts of the economy have lagged behind on that. And so you have this big spike in um, unit labor costs in part because we have seen the flip side of the huge j- uh, j- uh, downward drop in, uh, in uh, unit labor costs at the beginning of the, uh, of, the, of the recovery. But one thing you have to keep in mind is that the disinflationary forces have, are still in place that, co- that going all the way back to the last 10 years because technology and the changes in globalization are, are changing the way business models are going about doing their their, their, their business. Sure. And I think what, going forward, we're going to see that we will have uh, better profits and better uh, uh, results if we can keep up the pace of productivity growth. And yeah. I think Steve is absolutely right. Productivity is really the heart of what the future is going to hold for inflation.
0: Yeah, very, very good points there uh, that companies are now. And if you read the earnings calls uh, or just listen to me give you the summary of them, uh, what you'll find is almost every single company, I mean, even Costco, which has massive labor expenses, uh, every single company that I'm looking at, they're not talking about raising wages. They're talking about, yes, wages have gone up. But you know what they're talking about? Uh, We are working on increasing productivity and more automation because we believe if we can have more automation and more productivity, we will be able to make margins better. <laughs> right? Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot of what we're seeing right now, uh, which I think is phenomenal. Uh, and uh, it, it actually is somewhat bullish. Now, uh, we do need to look at uh, a little bit of what um, T.S. Lombard is saying. They're a pretty classic uh, traditional bear here. And, uh, you know, as, as much as I like to... You know put on my bullish hat I have to be realistic so I always always pay attention to the bears I like I say you might be a bear I might be a bull I'll still have beer with you doesn't matter you know, we can have different opinions uh, okay so what do we have here uh, the uh, Powell versus reality uh, this this author argues that the the idea that 50 basis points is even on the table next week, according to this bear, is a tacit admission that the downshift in hikes was a mistake. The Fed slowed, thinking they were closing in on peak rates. They are, in fact, no closer to understanding where peak rates reside than where they were a few months back, because they have no idea where disinflation will settle without a recession. February employment number, obviously, uh, those are coming out. Here, look at this. Fed hiking cycles measured in days and rates heading into a recession. And it kind of just shows you uh, sort of different eras here, the 90, 91, 2001, 2008, 2009. And you can see climb led to recession, climb led to recession, climb led to recession, climb led to COVID. So that was weird. So what are we, are we weird? Well, probably. Or are we going into recession? Yeah. This is just sort of your traditional bear case here. Anyway, the modified – here we go with this this Taylor rule again. Uh, See, this is yet another version of the Taylor rule. Oh, let's look at the modified Taylor rule. Well, if we do the formula, what do we get? Oh, we need to get to a 7.7% federal funds rate. Hey, which you know what? In fairness, everything the Federal Reserve has told us in terms of projections has been wrong so far. Wrong so far. Everything. Every time they give us a summary of economic projections, it's too low. You know, and, and I remember when the last summary of economic projections came out in December, we're like, Oh my god, five point one percent Fed funds rate, that's insane. That's that's higher than even the market's pricing again right now, and the market sold off. And and I remember saying, This is actually really bad because the Fed's been low on everything so far. Are they trying to get ahead or are they gonna end up being low on this again? Well, if we had to decide today, they're low again. Scary. Always wrong. Now if we get really good labor reports tomorrow and and good inflation reports next week then then maybe that's not that big of a deal uh either way next week is saint paddy's day and there's an awesome saint paddy's day opportunity for you link down below for the programs i'm building your wealth. remember we don't have any sponsors on this channel so if you appreciate that we're not talking sponsors it's just my own products link down below i think that the easiest product to sell is the one that you believe in the most and it's usually your own product so i'm a big fan of uh, of the quality and, and and what we have there for you but anyway, uh, this is the second headline of today's testimony. Okay, fantastic. Uh, hold on. There's one more piece from TS Lombard we need to talk about, and it has to do with the bond market. See, TS Lombard, continuing with sort of the bear case here, he argues that uh, while while there is some optimism, uh, optimism on disinflation, he argues that it is a fantasy to return to 2% inflation without a recession. I do think this bear is forgetting that it just needs to be 2% Average, right? I think I really think the Fed is just waiting to pull out the uh, the the average argument. We, we know it's coming. We know fate is coming because well, it's fate. Flexible average inflation targeting. Anyway, to uh, it compares basically to the inversion of the yield curve that we had in 2000, where the Fed funds rate topped out at six and a half percent, but inflation was running at 2.4 percent. Now inflation is running at six percent. And we're maybe going to top out at 5.1. He's basically like, yeah, right. This is the same person who's like, we're probably going to top out in the 7% range. Yikes. The 1970s was the last time we actually had this misguided optimism on inflation's course and Fed policy being priced into the yield curve. Remember, though, how are things different from the 70s? Inflation expectations today. And we didn't just leave the gold standard like we did in the 70s does give this example for inflation basically always going away through recession, but uh, and then specifically refers to the Korean War, but the Korean War is actually an example of a soft landing, so I wrote this on the side. The Korean War was deemed to be a ch- tiny recession that was actually cheered as solving inflation as a near-soft landing. Unemployment peaked at about 6.1%, and that recession was really called a V-shaped recovery, and it was deemed to be relatively mild and brief. So, I personally love it when people compare to the compare us today as a bull here I, I love it when people compare us to the Korean War era and that recession because it was like it was a, a fantastic recession like if you were going to have a recession that's the one you would hope for. However, as I have regularly said on the channel, hope is not an investing strategy. And if there's no return to 2% inflation without a recession, says this individual, uh, then it's likely, well, actually, the individual here suggests we're going to have to see the unemployment rate rise to about 5.5%. We're probably going to see that reflected in the next updated summary of economic projections coming out on the 22nd from the Fed. He does not believe that we are going to see the world mend itself back to what it was. What it was. This is even though, as we just saw in that CNBC interview, and what Jerome Powell reiterated, the disinflationary forces that were in effect in the last decade are still in effect today. Uh, that's that's important to remember. That's at least what Jerome Powell is telling us, and and institutions are telling us. And I believe that as well. Right? The disinflationary forces, re- whether you call it globalization or reglobalization, artificial intelligence, technological innovation, whatever. Uh, automation, you name it. My mid-year recession call is still a 55% uh, probability, rooted in the flip to negative carry for real inventories, uh, leading to more layoffs, and financial services no longer being able to build on high and rising equity prices. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of financial services right now. I think they're going to get hit by lower incomes really getting stretched substantially more. But anyway... Uh, The individual here says that the 5 to 10 curve usually actually turns positive before a recession. So that implies that we should have to start seeing the steepening of the yield curve before we're actually officially in a recession, which is interesting because, you know, what if we get the steepening of the yield curve in like June or July? Well, then it reiterates the idea that maybe we won't actually get a recession until like Q1 of 2024, right? Six months before. So I think this is really an interesting sort of leading indicator here. Air travel dropping back to 2019 levels. I actually thought that was bullish because it kind of suggests that we had this peak of air travel and we're going back to lower levels, which is good because you put less inflationary pressure on something that's been very much inflating. Uh, A little bit of talk about how we're seeing less financing of inflation, lower loans. We saw a lot of credit being pulled in the middle of 2022, but you're actually seeing less financing happening right now. Uh, The market remains convinced that the world will repair itself back to pre-COVID levels. According to this bear, it won't. Ignore the chatter about no recession needed. You know, I I don't know that we can say that we're definitely not going to have a recession. I just think the question is like, what stocks can you hold on to that will do well through hopefully what will be a mild recession? Now, everybody says every recession's going to be mild, but so, so we don't know how deep it'll get. But I, I mean, personally, what I'm just seeing with, with not only the excess savings people had, not to be compare, uh, confused with excess savings rates, but also with wealthier folks and businesses spending through the recession, I think you could really set yourself up with pricing power stocks that'll do well through a mild to moderate recession. I don't think anything does well in a bad recession, so so that is something to keep in mind. But yeah, I don't I I don't know that we have to believe in immaculate disinflation, which this individual calls a fairy tale, basically a fantasy. Uh, as long as we have a trend down and we're not getting Paul Volcker, uh, I remain bullish on pricing power style stocks. Yeah, I really like big PP. Uh, the bigger PP, the better. I just I just want PP all around me, uh, and, and I think that's very very important. Uh, but uh, you know, this this is your bear case, and I think the bear case has good arguments. Uh, I pay attention to it. I don't think those arguments are strong enough like they were in January of 2022. Uh, that's, that's really when we had leaning indicators, letting us know that poopsie doopsie was coming. But, uh, anyway, that gives you a little bit of the bear case in terms of what's going on with the bears. All right. And next up, so we just talked about the bears. I talk about the bulls. <laughs> so, uh, we're going to talk, we're going to look at some surveys and what's going on with uh with the bowls and some surveys. Oh, this should be pretty interesting. So stand by all right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we've got to talk a little bit about the bull case. Ed, one of the things propping up the bull case, in my opinion, is what some surveys are showing about the allocation to equities relative to bonds and uh, cash. Now, there are two surveys we're going to look at. We're going to look at a Bank of America survey, and we're also going to look at a JPM survey. JPMorgan Chase. Now, what I think is very interesting as well, before I hit those surveys, is there's a lot of talk right now about potentially patiently going back into markets. Barclays starts off by suggesting that maybe you can patiently go back into markets. Specifically, they prefer EU stocks versus U.S. equities. They're advising care at current levels, but I thought this paragraph here was very interesting. The rates equity paradigm of last year may be changing, with equity markets now responding more to improving growth, meaning they are in a better place to cope with higher rates. Think about that. If growth maintains, we could get through higher for longer. We think stocks can continue to climb in the wall of worry as sentiment slash positioning are more cautious post the February consolidation. Terminal rate expectations have been recalibrated to realistic levels, and earnings are holding up better than feared. Oh my gosh, this is like a, like, this is like beautiful hopium here. Like, I'm, I'm just getting turned on by the amount of hopium this 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 piece is giving me. Now remember, I, I cover the bears, I cover the bulls, but this is very interesting because they're making this argument that, hey, if so many people are on the side, it's actually really hard for you to have a, a big leg to the downside if so many people are already sitting on the side. And we're calibrating to the idea of higher for longer. And we're calibrating to the idea that, okay, guess what? We're going to have higher interest rates. And, and as long as earnings hold up, we're happy. We just look for pricing power stocks. We just go find our PP, and then we, we you know ride our PP. We ride our pricing power stocks uh, through the recession. They do uh, uh, say that, uh, look at this. I'll just read this. Earnings are holding up better than fear. And investors who missed out on the rally have dry powder- to chase the rally. Interesting. However, we're advising care. There is no free lunch. Yes, there is uh, a lot of liquidity on the sidelines. For now, uh, Barclays is keeping a risk-on bias. And of course, uh, uh, you know, that while there could be a big downside, they argue, quote, "We see little risk of a sharp reversal in positioning given the current moderate exposure." So they're really making the argument like, "Dude, so many people are bearish." Like, you have less downside now with how many people are bearish. Now, they do argue that it looks like the Federal Reserve U-turning is far off. The self, self-induced recession may be the price to, br- to pay to bring inflation down. Uh, and macro is certainly volatile and, and unclear right now. Uh, but look at this sentiment here. Sentiment is not so complacent anymore. Uh, this is the fear-greed indicator where basically lower is more fearful. And you're seeing a change in trend. I drew these little red lines here. So this circle I'm making on the left here shows you people getting more fearful. Now people are very slowly becoming less fearful. So you got a trend over here. At the same time, global activity rebounding. Look at this rebound in global activity, 2022, straight down basically. And now you're getting that inflection point in global activity. Very fascinating. So this Barclays piece was phenomenal. But I want to align this Barclays piece with what I actually saw uh, from from advisors and surveys. So we're going to do the B of A survey, and then we're going to do the JPM survey. So B of A survey, what does it tell us? Cash is king. Uh, What do we have for cash is king? Average cash allocations rose 10%, the highest in our survey history. Just 26% of financial advisors plan to buy stock with excess cash versus 42% last year. So in other words, you have less people interested in buying stocks right now while more people are buying bonds or staying in cash. 41% of financial advisors expect a recession starting in Q2, 23% in Q3. Advisors are cautious in the near term, but they're actually bullish in the 12-month forecast. 70% 70% expect that the bear market will end in the first half or the bear market is already over. So even though they think either the pain is going to be over by the second half or the that you know the bear market is already over, despite that, they're still allocating more money to cash and sitting on the sidelines. Right now, they prefer value over growth, which in my opinion creates massive opportunities to build an allocation in growth stocks and tech. I wanna be where people are not. You know, I want to buy real estate when everybody is afraid to buy real estate. I want to buy stocks when everybody else is afraid to buy stocks. What are people most bearish on right now? Consumer discretionary, real estate, and tech. Well, it's not—it's way too soon to buy real estate, but I think it's a perfect time. Not financial, personalized financial advice or a guarantee for you, but I think it's a fantastic time to look for pricing power stocks in the tech space and maybe certain pricing power stocks in the consumer discretionary. I think there are some buy the dip opportunities in discretionary. You have to be careful though. Yesterday we did an analysis on uh, Amazon versus, let's say, Etsy, for example. Check out the course member live stream for more on that which remember we've got that St. Patty sale going on, linked down below, uh, which you could take advantage of to get lifetime access to those programs on Building Your Wealth. It's the only sponsor for uh, my, uh, my channel here. So if you want to help out the channel, you want to join those course member live streams, use them as an archive, use them as something you can sort of uh, download and watch over time, uh, playback on 2x, whatever you want to do. There's some phenomenal opportunities to get great perspectives there. And in my opinion, uh, if you stop learning, you die. So you always want to learn. If you like my perspectives, check those uh, programs out down below. There's there's definitely something there for you. Plenty of programs. Anyway, uh, bonds over stocks, firmly consensus. Advisor bond allocation rose. Okay, we already talked about advisor bond allocation. What do we have here? Near term cautious, 70% expect the market. Okay, we talked about that one already. All right. Only 13% of financial advisors Expect the U.S. economy to avoid a recession over the next two years. So it's pretty much a foregone conclusion by financial advisors we're going to go in a recession. Biggest tail risks, recession and the Fed. Last year, we were worried about inflation. Now we're actually not worried about inflation anymore. We're actually worried about the central bank just breaking something or a recession geopolitics are up there as well. I think geopolitics are less of a risk. I don't see a Taiwan invasion. And while Ukraine-Russia is dragging on, I think that to be a little bit more of a sort of edge issue right now. Obviously, that's not to say that the loss of life is is not a problem. It is. It's something we should pay attention to. But yes, I agree that the EPS write-downs are probably the biggest issue for the market right now. And that's, again, why I focus on pricing power stocks. I actually think the best way to be exposed to pricing power stocks, and yes, I'm biased, but it's through a pricing power style ETF. The reason for that is if one of the pricing power stocks runs a lot, we could basically at an ETF exchange the stock that ran for uh, reallocating or rebalancing to other stocks that are pricing power stocks without passing on capital gains. The ETF, like you pay a tiny little fee for an ETF compared to the the potential taxes you save to be able to rebalance. You know, one stock doubles. And you sell half of it at a massive gain, you're paying like 30% in taxes in some cases instantly, depending on short-term, long-term, or whatever. But if within the wrapper of an ETF, an active ETF manager can exchange that for a diversified basket of other pricing power stocks and pass on no capital gains to you because of the ETF structure, you're just holding on to the ETF ticker. And as long as it's structured correctly when there are plenty of gains to avoid, it's a phenomenal opportunity to avoid taxation. I mean, mean, uh, ETFs are awesome. Uh, Just over the last few years have I become so bullish on these. But I think this is very, very interesting. Advisors are most bullish on small caps. I think that's very interesting. Advisors say Tina is over. Tina is uh, uh, there is no alternative for stocks, right? Anyway, with the end of zero interest rate policies, stocks are no longer the only compelling asset class. I actually think this could lead to a violent resurgence in stocks because so many people are on the sidelines with cash. You can see this violent entrance into stocks, kind of like what we saw in January. I think you're going to see more of those violent up moves on the Fibonacci retracement lines. Look at this. Equity allocation is sitting at the lowest levels in our survey history. Here's the Bank of America survey going back to 2017. We're sitting at the lowest equity allocations, around 57% here, where usually we're well above 60%. I find that very interesting. Uh, some other charts here. Look at this. Look at this. This is a very cool one. This is extreme bullishness for stocks, which is bearish, right? And we were at that level at the end of 21 Extreme bearishness for or, or stocks, which is actually bullish for buying stocks. You saw that sort of at the end of 2012 over here. So this can go very low below trend. But look at where we sit right now. We're sitting very close to that green line over there. So I again, I like buying when other people are fearful, right? Warren Buffett, be fearful when people are greedy. 80% of clients have higher cash balance than before covid Clients are looking to either stay in cash or buy bonds with excess cash so they're not super bullish on, uh, on stocks. However, look at this. Financial advisors advise caution in the near term, so more cash and more bonds. But in the long term, what do they advise? Bullishness on stocks. This is really fascinating, in my opinion. Advisors also expect the Fed to be less hawkish than what the Fed is pricing in, Uh, some suggesting with a higher likelihood that we're already in the recession or downturn era. Uh, This is uh, financial advisors really expecting to see that recession Q2, Q3. I think that could really push out to potentially Q4. But also look at this. 2023 could be a good year for active management. Hey, we were just talking about that. Passive is crowded. Bank of America saying passive investments are crowded right now active actually is not very crowded. Again, potentially suggesting active ETF management could be a good idea. Single stock buying out of equilibrium, all right. Let's now jump over to, for a moment, uh, I want to jump on into uh, the uh, JPM survey. And then we got to jump on over to the course member live stream. China reopening somewhat positive. Okay. This survey kind of keeps going on. But the, the most important parts we've already hit. I want to look at the JPM survey. And then we're going to get to our course member live stream. Okay. Ready for this? JPM survey. Uh, this, is this the survey? This is, yeah, they're initially somewhat. Okay. Here's the survey part. So look at this survey. What is your current equity position or sentiment in historical terms? Look at this. In historical terms, most bearish, 0 percentile, to most bullish, 100 percentile. The vast majority of people are sitting over here in the 20 to 40 percentile. That's somewhere around 42 percent sitting over here, 18 percent sitting in the middle. A much more of a bearish bias than bullish bias for stocks right now. Are you likely to increase or decrease equity exposure over the coming days? The blue line is planning to increase equity exposure. Look how low it is. Only 30% expecting to increase equity exposure in the coming days. Look at this. Which asset class do you expect to perform best over the next three months? Equities? Only at 8%. People are very bearish on equities right now. Folks, that's buy time in my opinion. That's freaking buy, buy, buy time. I'm going to do some buying today. I've decided. I'm I, I I I'm gonna I'm gonna do some buying today. I like buying, but anyway. Um, oops, that's my uh. Uh, anyway, there you have it. So uh, yeah, wow. Uh, I think personally, these surveys are making it very very clear, uh, that uh, you have uh, a lot of uh, excitement. In my opinion, for people who are contrarians. Most people are so bearish right now on this idea that this EPS recession is going to be so painful. So what I like to do is I like to look at these surveys and say, okay, well, if positioning is very bearish and people are focused on cash and bonds, then I want to be looking for pricing power opportunities because I think pricing power opportunities are going to do the best in a potential recession, focusing on higher income businesses and higher income individuals. But also, if people are mostly bearish right now, maybe now is that opportunity, especially leading into these uh, the, this this uh, era here of um, of uh, pain uh, as we wait for these uh, these data sets to come in, you know, jobs and CPI and that. So anyway, that's my take. Really appreciate you all being here, folks. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.